You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Lee Wong. Hey City Tribe, my name's Lee. I'm one of your tribe teachers, and whether you're a longtime part of City Tribe's fam, or if today is your first time with us, welcome. I'm thrilled that you've joined us for today's teaching, especially because the journey we'll take will paint for you and for me the clearest picture yet in this series of Jesus's personality, his preferences, and his perspective. Here's what I mean by that. For the last seven weeks, we've journeyed through John's eyewitness account to better recognize who Jesus is, that is to know him more intimately, become more familiar with him. And today we transition into what John detailed about Jesus's final moments on earth. Now think about this. If you knowingly were in your final moments of life, wouldn't you be very deliberate about every word you'd speak and deliberate about every deed you'd do? Of course you would. And that's exactly why these next sections that we're going to explore over the next few weeks are so huge. Since we're unpacking Jesus's final moment, you better believe, you better recognize that what he taught was deliberate. This teaching has the potential to change your life if you allow it to penetrate and permeate your heart and your mind. Now to that end, If you have a loved one who you've longed to have a clearer picture of Jesus, maybe they're just turned off by religion, they're turned off by Christianity and what they see on the news and all on social media, let me encourage you right now, tag them in the chat or send them the link so that they can, with you, better recognize who Jesus is, see his essence. All right, are y'all ready to see the essence of who Jesus is on display in his final moments? Well, let's pray, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, your scriptures say that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, testifies as to who you are. And so, for everyone who's watching or listening to this broadcast, whether they are a longtime follower and have familiarity with who you are, or if they are just tuning in for the first time or they're still a spiritual investigator, a skeptic, I pray that today especially your spirit would testify. Teach us something new about who you are. Help us see your true essence that we might better recognize who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Well, Amen. So, what did Jesus' final moments reveal about his personality, his perspective, and his preferences? Well, where we pick up in John's account today, here's what had been going down. We learned last week that Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And if someone you personally knew had been dead for four days but was once again alive, you'd be persuaded that the one who gave new life to your friend Well, he probably had godlike abilities, right? Well, such was the case for the countless folks who had seen Lazarus alive again. And John wrote that many of the Jews who saw what he had done, they believed 
in him. And this made the Jewish lawmakers and the aristocrats of the day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, it made them extremely insecure. You see, what made this miracle that Jesus performed even more significant is when Jesus performed it. Jesus gave Lazarus new life just days before the week-long Jewish independent celebration, Passover. That is, as millions arranged to arrive at the center of this Jewish celebration, Jerusalem. John detailed it this way. Now, the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country. All of Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were abuzz about this miracle worker, Jesus. Countless travelers wanted to see for themselves this man who gives new life to the dead. And if the many who believed in Jesus after he raised Lazarus was a sample size of his potential influence, Well, if millions of travelers saw Jesus' power on display, surely they too would believe in him and devote themselves to him. Jesus had the potential at this particular Passover to influence an uprising and establish himself as king. Such an uprising would be to the disadvantage of the lawmakers, the rulers, the aristocrats, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. They'd lose the political power and the economic profit they'd worked their entire lives to acquire. I'll say they were worried. And they convened to create a plan to control the potential chaos. They said, what are we going to do since this man is doing so many miracles? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they will take both our place and our nation. These authorities didn't have to deliberate long at their little convention before they decided what must happen. Despite their public portrayal of their devotion to God and his laws like thou shalt not kill, the religious council revealed to whom and to whose interests they were truly devoted. They decided For their nation's sake, which of course needed them in power, Jesus had to die. John wrote, so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it so they could arrest him. A completely innocent Jesus had become a dead man walking. And he recognized it. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Now, hopefully, you've never, like I've never, been on someone's hit list, at least not that I know of. So we aren't able to know exactly how Jesus might have felt knowing he was a dead man walking, an innocent man at that. But certainly at some point in your life, you've been the target of character assassination. Someone wanted to kill your character, perhaps a classmate or a coworker very intentionally and maliciously tried to destroy your reputation. Perhaps your boss, who's never once set clear expectations, gave you an unfair, undeserved annual evaluation and derailed your career potential. Or maybe an ex has taken you to court for custody of the children and has built a case against you, twisting all of your words. Listen, I don't care how tough-skinned you are. 
Knowing someone is out to hurt you, it messes with your head. Like I know for me personally, when folks have attacked me, I've felt so discouraged and so depleted in my energy. Walking around knowing people are out to kill your character, it can mentally and emotionally weigh you down. And if this is how we feel with mere chisme and slander, how do you imagine a completely innocent Jesus felt knowing that people were out to literally, physically harm him? What mental and emotional weight do you imagine Jesus carried knowing a bunch of jealous and self-preserving religious authorities wanted him dead? Well, I'm sure you would agree with me. He was at least agitated and angry, right? And it's reasonable to consider that Jesus would have also felt anguished and agonized. Here's why it's considerable. When the many learned that Jesus approached Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they welcomed Jesus into the city in a way that would have troubled him to have heard. You see, the arrival of the king who'd forever reign was predicted in a psalm written a thousand years prior. And whether the many had realized it or not, whether it was intentional or unintentional, they fulfilled that thousand-year-old psalm's prediction. Because as Jesus entered Jerusalem, they sang out, just as that psalm was written, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hearing this, Jesus was well aware of what it meant to be king. The many celebrated the arrival of their long-awaited God-king who'd restore their nation to prominence and who would establish his forever kingdom. But they overlooked a key factor about the king predicted in that psalm. Heck, even the scripture experts in that day, they didn't understand what exactly establishing the eternal kingdom entailed. But having heard the many sing that psalm, Jesus would have been reminded of yet another psalm about that king. A psalm that predicted what kingship actually entailed. And it read, you put me into the dust of what? Death. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus knew establishing his kingdom meant he had to die. And having recognized the psalm concerning his arrival had been fulfilled, and having recognized the religious authorities closed in on him and determined to kill him as had been predicted, Jesus undoubtedly connected the dots and it became abundantly clear what was imminent. It had become clear that this particular Passover it would be his last as God revealed in human form. And so John, who spent 12 chapters building toward it, finally recorded a most ominous declaration, a declaration that Jesus spent three years of ministry building toward. The world and Jesus' disciples especially would finally see who he really is and what he had come to do. Jesus finally declared, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But not only did Jesus recognize his death was imminent, that his hour had come, the thousand-year-old psalm predicted that his hands and feet would be pierced. 
So if knowing you're an innocent, dead man walking wasn't agitating enough, imagine knowing also the manner of death you'd experience was crucifixion. A punishment perfected over the centuries to inflict as much physical and emotional torment possible. No, seriously, put yourself in Jesus's position for just a moment. Imagine knowing as Jesus knew that you'd be publicly slapped and stripped completely naked and spit upon. Imagine knowing what Jesus knew all too well, that he'd be scourged with leather whips, knotted with glass and bronze hooks to rip off as much flesh as possible. He knew with his raw flesh exposed and being physically exhausted from beatings, that he'd be forced to carry a hundred pound wooden crossbeam about a mile all the while being hit along the way. Jesus knew that he would be fastened to that beam with iron spikes piercing through the nerve endings of his wrists. His arms stretched out to cause cramping and paralysis of the chest muscles. He knew that with his knees slightly bent one foot over the other, a large spike would be driven through the arches of his feet. All of his body weight would be supported by only those three nails, thus constricting his airway. In order to breathe, he'd have to push up his feet, scraping his already raw back on the upright wooden beam. Jesus understood that kingship required he suffered this impending torturous fate. So you in the chat, if you knew your hour had come to suffer crucifixion, what might you have felt? I know for me personally, just typing this out, just talking about it, I started to get teary-eyed thinking about the evils that we humans are capable of, right? So what kind of mental and emotional weight might Jesus have carried entering into this moment? How might he have felt knowing this was his fate? Knowing he'd soon be crucified, Jesus was unquestionably deeply agonized. And John wanted you and me to better recognize this. It's why he recorded when Jesus said, now my spirit is troubled. What should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Now by now, I'm sure you get the point. And honestly, I would love to stop there, but so you and I would fully grasp the depths of Jesus's agony, John unpacked it even further. And it's critical to help us better recognize exactly who Jesus is. So we're going to continue. You know, it's one thing to feel agonized and angry knowing evildoers want you dead. But knowing your death would come at the hands of someone you considered family, well, that's devastating. Here's what I mean. For three years, Jesus had traveled with, taught, and entrusted Judas Iscariot. Judas was among the 12 individuals Jesus invited to initiate his kingdom movement in the world. For some of you already familiar with the scriptures, when you hear the name Judas, perhaps you automatically associate him with his infamous act. John wrote, when it was time for supper, the devil had put it into the heart of Judas the Iscariot to betray him. But you and I today, we have the privilege of being able to look back at this incident his fellow disciples in that moment, they didn't know any of this. They didn't know who Judas really was when they traveled with him. 
And Jesus, well, Jesus must have seen potential in Judas because despite having a professional tax collector on his team, Jesus appointed Judas to serve as his ministry's chief financial officer. John wrote that he, Judas, was in charge of the money bag. Now, not only did Jesus trust Judas with a critical assignment in his kingdom movement, Jesus also saw Judas as a trusted advisor from whom the other disciples likely sought wisdom. And we know this is true because of an Old Testament story that Jesus used to reference his relationship with Judas. Now, for just a moment, we're going to take a break from John's account. And we're going to look at that Old Testament story to get a better understanding of Jesus' relationship with Judas. So let's put a pin in John's account for a moment and travel back in time with me to about 1000 B.C., Around 1000 BC, Israel's King David had a trusted advisor. The scriptures describe this advisor as being so wise, it's like every word he spoke was from God himself. King David and this advisor, they shared many a meal together and they had many meaningful conversations. David delighted in the company of this advisor. He cared for him as if he was his own family member. But... This advisor eventually defected from the king's court and he eventually sought to kill King David or have King David killed. And as a result, King David wrote a psalm, a song about how devastating it felt to be betrayed by family. He detailed that it felt like a horse had raised its hooves and kicked him down to the ground. And I've never been kicked down by a horse, thankfully, but I know that devastating feeling of betrayal. Like, I think about a time when I had put my trust and my hope in someone. I sincerely believed this person was actually as he portrayed himself to be. I believed he wanted what I wanted and that he was working to help accomplish it. Everyone in my family loved him. He was family to us. But after a disagreement, he abandoned us. And we later discovered that he and his family stole a large sum of money from my family and left town. And the fallout was ugly and it was painful. I very often wish that matters would have played out completely differently. An assault on the wound. He ended up having tremendous success in his new town with his new family. And let me be completely honest with you about this betrayal. It crushed me when I saw Kawhi Leonard hoist the championship and finals MVP trophies. Come on, man. That was painful. And if you're from San Antonio where this was a painful ordeal, chances are you feel sick to your stomach right now. And I'm sorry I had to bring this up. But take that feeling of an athlete leaving your team, a beloved athlete leaving your beloved team, and multiply it by someone you call family setting out to kill you. This, this is the sentiment King David wrote about in his song. Now, end Old Testament story. Now, fast forward back a thousand years, back into John's narrative. The reason we know that Jesus viewed Judas like King David viewed his advisor, like family, and the reason we know Jesus felt Judas' betrayal was like being kicked by a horse's hooves 
is because Jesus quoted the very Psalm King David wrote. Jesus quoted, the one who eats my bread, the one I've invited to sit at the table with me and share meaningful conversations, the one I see as family, has raised his heel against me, has kicked me down with horses' hooves. Jesus felt about Judas's betrayal infinitely worse than you and I felt when Kawhi left the Spurs family. And so for Jesus, knowing people were out to literally, physically harm him, knowing his hour had come and crucifixion was imminent, knowing that he'd be betrayed by someone he considered family, this particular Passover, celebrating it, it would feel far from celebratory. And so you and I could be abundantly clear about the mental and emotional agony Jesus carried. John made it a point to again tell us about the heaviness Jesus felt. John again wrote, he was troubled in his spirit. Now, here's why John wanted you and me to be clear about Jesus's agony and his anguish. Here's why I've spent so much time highlighting the heaviness Jesus carried. What Jesus did next was utterly shocking for his disciples who lived in a status-obsessed culture. Heck, what he did would have even be uncomfortable for you and for me to see him do in our world today. And what he did was especially unnatural for someone who was so anguished. And so what did Jesus do? Carrying such a heavy and emotional agony, knowing his fate, the scourging, the spitting, the suffocation, knowing the fate that awaited him, how did Jesus conduct himself? Well, according to John, here's what Jesus did. He got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing. He took a towel and he tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Despite his agony, despite knowing the fate that awaited him, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Even, now get this, don't miss this, even the feet of his would-be betrayer, Judas. Now, for those of you who've heard this story before, or for those of you who've been a church gathering or at a Bible camp, you have literally washed another person's feet. Don't let this familiarity that you have with this gesture make you miss the shock value. It was revolutionary. You see, for people at this point in history, before Nikes and New Balance footwear, for people who walked on dusty roads in sandals, washing your guests' feet was the ultimate act of hospitality. Think about this. If you've ever had a pedicure, for example, chances are you went because your patitas were all busted and crusted. You might have felt embarrassed and so you didn't want to walk around with your callous toes exposed. And maybe like Cleveland Brown from Family Guy, you have terrible foot odor. But when you left that salon, boy, I bet, I bet you felt refreshed and confident. You probably posted pics of your little painted piggies on the gram, right, for everybody to see. Because after having your feet cared for, 
you were at rest. And so washing someone's feet in ancient times, it was the ultimate gesture of hospitality. Your guests, they could recline confidently and they could feel refreshed. Washing their feet would have given them rest. And as huge of a gesture as this was, no one in the first century wanted to perform this service. Here's why. Consider for a moment the posture one must make, the position one must take in order to wash another person's feet. You have to kneel down in a lowered, vulnerable position. And what does that lowered kneeling posture look like? Well, you're in a position similar to what one does when he or she is kneeling before a dignitary. It's a posture that communicates, you are more important than me. The posture of washing feet, it communicates submission and servitude to another individual. And so in Jesus's day, the person who washed another's feet was perceived as undignified. It was considered so undignifying a Jewish host would hire slaves from another race to perform that service because they didn't want to disgrace their own kind, their own people. And this is why another of Jesus' disciples named Peter, why he was so appalled that the other disciples would allow Jesus to take such a posture. He couldn't believe that they'd allow Jesus to degrade himself. But Peter, Peter was too loyal and too honoring for that. And so Peter shouted at Jesus, you will never wash my feet. And so if washing someone's feet was so disgraceful and undignifying, why would Jesus do it? Better yet, why would Jesus, carrying so much mental and emotional agony, willingly perform such a hospitable gesture for even his betrayer, Judas? Here's how Jesus answered that. He said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now this phrase, part with me. It communicates the idea of one's share or one's allotment or one's reward of an inheritance. For example, when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers divvied up and claimed his possessions as their own. They took what they saw as their share or their reward. They took their part. And so, it's as if Jesus said to his disciples, I want to serve you and give you hospitality because I want you to share in my possession. I want to reward you. I want to give you your part. But what exactly are those possessions that he wanted his disciples to share in? What reward does Jesus want to give? What is our part? Now, if your perception of God is that he's always all about judgment and punishment, well, perk up and pay attention because Jesus, God revealed in human form, told us what he wants to give us. He said, my peace I give to you. And when he later prayed for his disciples, he revealed in what else he wanted his disciples to take part. He prayed that they may have my joy completed in them. And so Jesus wants to reward his disciples, you and me, with his share of his godly peace and his godly joy, a wholeness and a calm delight. In a moment when Jesus was anguished and agonized, angry 
and agitated in a moment when my default desire would be to pop a pain relief pill or when I'd be tempted to turn to tequila or overindulge in junk food for comfort, when pain would drive me to isolate myself or when I would desire to lash out at others so they could feel my pain. Jesus, Jesus deliberately denied his agony and he purposefully prioritized his disciples' care. Pay attention to that. Jesus deliberately denied his agony and he instead prioritized his disciples' care, including Judas. Who can say they want even their opposers to experience peace and joy, a wholeness of mind and a calm delight? I'm sorry, but I don't naturally want that for my opposers or people who have hurt me or sought to hurt me. When someone opposes me, I don't think to posture myself lower than they. I naturally bow up and I respond with wanting revenge. I didn't want Kawhi to enjoy success and much less win another championship. And so why? Why would Jesus willingly care for even his opposers and his betrayers like Judas? John gave us a clue as to why. In some of the opening lines of this section, chapter 13, he recorded, Jesus knew he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew where he was from and to where he was returning. And so Jesus cares for even his opposers because he knows that this physical world was not his permanent home. In fact, several times throughout John's account, Jesus straight up said, I am not of this world. Being not of this physical world, Jesus doesn't operate according to our world's perspectives and values. He operates according to an otherworldly, eternal perspective. What Jesus demonstrated is where he's from, in his world, people aren't governed by their emotions. They're not governed by anger and retaliation. In his world, under his kingship, People don't prioritize perceived power of this temporary physical world. No, what Jesus demonstrated is in his world, people deliberately deny their default desires. Write that down. They deliberately deny their desires despite what they feel. People instead purposely prioritize other folks. They purposefully posture themselves so that others will share in Jesus's peace and in his joy so they can have this overwhelming sense of calm delight. And Jesus elaborated on this otherworldly posture. After Judas handed over Jesus to be crucified, Jesus told a governing official, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. We would prioritize ourselves, a self-preservation. We wouldn't posture ourselves lower than others. We would power up. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Now, I know it's kind of weird to say that Jesus is not of this world. I mean, after all, all you and I really know is this physical world. So it's hard not to get caught up in it. It's hard not to get wrapped up in politics and in personal pursuits for fame and for glory, and it's hard not to self-preserve as much as we can, right? So how might we know what Jesus said was true? 
Why should we be persuaded that Jesus was truly not of this world? Well, think about how Peter freaked out when Jesus postured himself lower than others, when he wanted to wash their feet. Well, in his book, Humilitas, historian John Dixon detailed how that was actually the most appropriate response for that day. That's what was expected. You see, for most of human history, posturing yourself low, it carried a negative connotation. It was understood as an inability to establish your worth and your power. The low-postured person was perceived as weak and inferior who posed no threat. It was really shameful. So much of ancient life revolved around pursuing public praise and posturing yourself above other people. Yet nowadays, you and I, we detest that kind of stuff. We detest when folks are self-promoting and when folks self-elevate. We cringe at the thought of it. But my guess is you, like me, we appreciate when someone prioritizes and elevates other people. We celebrate those individuals who posture themselves lower than others. And so when did this shift in human perspective and in human values happen? And how did it happen? According to Dixon's historical research, your and my appreciation for prioritizing others, it came not through a slow evolution of society, but it happened through a radical rapid revolution, virtually overnight, historically speaking. Dixon found that this shift, without question, it derives from the peculiar impact of Jesus's not of this world, kingdom, virtue, and value, his perspective. Dixon wrote, and I phrased it this way, as a plain historical statement, Humility came to be valued in the world as a consequence of Jesus and his followers dismantling of the self-prioritizing paradigm of the ancient world. It is unlikely that any of us would aspire to, would appreciate posturing ourselves lower than others, if not for the historical impact of Jesus's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascent to his not-of-this-world kingdom. John Dixon's historical research proves that Jesus' disciples deliberately denied themselves and postured themselves lower than others because they believed their king was not of this world. And anyone who has the power to change the world's virtues and values overnight like Jesus did, well, he's probably not of this world. And so you and I can be persuaded that Jesus is not of this world and his kingdom is not of this world. And so this is why Jesus is willing to care for even his opposers. He has a different perspective. He has a different value system. Now, that's not the only reason. On top of having an otherworldly priority to posture himself lower than others, Jesus knew his kingdom's true opposition. He knew his kingship's true betrayer. So let's go back to Jesus' last supper before he was handed over. John recorded, Satan entered Judas. And so Jesus told him, told who? Judas? No, told Satan. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. Did you catch that? Jesus didn't address Judas, 
Jesus addressed Satan who had entered Judas. In fact, Jesus further highlighted that he recognized who his true opposer is when he prayed to God the Father, I am not praying that you take them, the disciples, out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one who is in it. Jesus had the perspective to understand that Judas was not his true enemy. Jesus had the otherworldly perspective to see that no matter your conduct or my conduct, you are still his adored creation. Judas was Jesus's adored creation. You and I are still, like Judas was still, wonderfully made in Jesus's otherworldly image. As a matter of fact, Jesus even told his disciples, you are not of this world. And so wherever you're watching or listening, whenever you're watching or listening, I want you to tell yourself out loud or tell the person next to you, you are not of this world. As a matter of fact, tag someone in the chat and you type, you are not of this world to that person. Jesus didn't lash out about his impending crucifixion. He instead deliberately denied his anger and his agony, our human default desires. And he instead purposefully prioritized even his opposer's well-being because Jesus wants you and me, all of creation, to experience life in its fullest possible capacity now and for all of eternity. Someone right now needs to hear this. And so, y'all, close your eyes and put your hands out in front of you as if you are going to receive something. Unless you're driving, please keep your eyes open. But with your eyes closed and your hands out, listen, maybe with the best of intentions, you've been like Peter. And you don't want to dishonor Jesus by receiving from him. Or maybe whether intentionally or unintentionally, you have been like Judas and you have opposed Jesus and his kingdom movement. Maybe you've had your own agenda or you've slandered him. Listen, no matter what you have done, I want you to hear this. Jesus still adores you. You are not of this world. Receive that. You are still his priority. Jesus still wants to wash your feet because you are not of this world. Receive that. He wants to refresh you, to care for you, and to show you just how hospitable he is. Jesus wants you to share in his otherworldly joy and peace now and for eternity because you are not of this world. Would you receive that? Go ahead and open your eyes. And as much as it sucks to hear this, this is why Jesus wants to give peace to your ex who betrayed you. It's why Jesus still offers joy and peace to your boss who can act like a complete jerk sometimes, who thinks he's God. It's why he offers life to the full to that Republican neighbor and to that Democrat and even, yes, to Kawhi Leonard. Jesus' willingness to posture himself in service of even his betrayers, it put his true essence on display. It's why he said, now the son of man is glorified. Now you see who I really am and God is glorified. You see the essence and the nature of God. So where do we start? 
Or where do we restart today to begin sharing in the joy and the peace that Jesus wants to give us? How might we allow Jesus to care for us like he did for his disciples? Well, we start by doing what Judas did not. Remember in week three's teaching titled Consumed, when you accept and affirm that Jesus is God, you are bathed by Jesus's spirit. You are made clean and Jesus is not of this world. Eternal spirit takes up residence within you. But Jesus's remarks teach us that Judas never affirmed Jesus was God, that he was Lord who was not from this world. Judas never accepted and affirmed. He never believed Jesus was sent from God and would return to God. It's why Jesus said about Judas, not all of you are clean. And a part of the reason Judas never believed and thus was never bathed by Jesus's spirit was because he prioritized a powered up posture above others in this physical world. Judas was secretly a slanderer and an opposer to Jesus's kingdom movement. He was called a devil. He prioritized self-preservation. He was a thief. And when he realized Jesus was going to die and he wasn't going to profit off of Jesus's kingdom movement any longer, he became a son of destruction and he sought to profit off of Jesus one last time by betraying him. His preference, his priority for this world and not Jesus's otherworldly kingdom is what made him the prime target for Satan. He didn't follow Jesus's not of this world example to deliberately deny his default desires. And Judas thus ultimately missed out on sharing in Jesus's peace and joy for all of eternity. He missed out on life to the full that he was created to experience that Jesus wanted to give him. But you and I, that doesn't have to be our fate. We can guard against missing out on our part. We can guard against missing out on our share of peace and joy. We can be made clean. Jesus said, the one who hates, that is who deliberately denies his life in this world he will keep it for eternal life. So I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to join me in doing what Judas was never willing to do. I'm inviting you to do what Jesus very clearly demonstrated was his kingdom's virtues, his kingdom values. It was a virtue that, as you just heard, shaped the world as you and I know it today so you would be on the right side of history. And so you've got everything to gain from doing this. Decide with me today to hate, that is to deliberately deny this world's perspectives, this world's preferences, and this world's pursuits. Let's decide today or redecide today that you will deliberately deny being an opposer to Jesus's kingdom movement. Decide you will deliberately deny having a self-preserving posture that you would not be a self-preserving thief or a son or daughter of destruction that postures yourself above other people. Let's decide today to live like we are not of this world. 
Because like Jesus said, you're not. And so if you're willing to declare today that you are going to deliberately deny as best as you possibly can yourself and prioritize Jesus's not of this world kingdom, let's pray what Peter said. He said, Lord, affirming that Jesus is king, not only my feet. Lord, I don't just want a part of your joy and your peace, but also my hands and my heart. Make me clean. Put your spirit in me as well. And so let's pray something like that. Lord, just like Peter prayed, we ask that you would just make us clean by your spirit because we're declaring that you are a not of this world king. And so we want a part in your possessions. We want a part in your peace and in your joy. We ask that you would wash our feet. We invite you to do it. We ask that you would help us to posture ourselves, to prioritize others, and live like we are not of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Men. Well, if you prayed that prayer with me, congratulations. Jesus has made you clean. He has put his spirit within you. He has secured your ticket to eternity, and he will care for you, give you his peace and his joy. Continue to deny yourself daily. Now, before we conclude our conversation today, I want to just share with you a couple of ways to deliberately deny yourself and purposefully prioritize this not of this world kingdom. The first, I wanna encourage you to publicly declare your decision to deny yourself and entrust Jesus as king. And the way that you can get baptized, we're gonna do a very special baptism during this whole COVID season. And so go to citytribe.church slash baptism for more information. There is a very cool way that we're gonna do this. We want to celebrate that decision with you. Another way that you can deliberately deny yourself, hate your life in this world and prioritize the kingdom movement is to share. Share this message, whether in your own words with somebody else or share the link with that individual so they too can be encouraged and see a clear picture of who Jesus is and his essence. Let me encourage you also to subscribe to City Tribe Media, whether on YouTube or Apple Podcasts, any of our various media platforms, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and also sow a seed in the kingdom. Another way that we deliberately deny ourselves, hate our lives in this world, is to sow a seed in this kingdom movement for its advancement so more people can share and take part in Jesus's joy and his peace now and for eternity. And so the ways that we do that and we give a first priority to this kingdom movement, you can give via mail, you can text to give, or you can go to citytribe.church slash tithe. Jesus wants to bless you. And one special announcement for those of you who have stuck around long enough. Our senior leader, our chief visionary, Pastor Doug Robbins, has a vision for our tribe, of which I have an opportunity to help attain that vision. And so I am recruiting a team. And so here's what I'm wanting you to do. If you've stuck around this long, 
The only requirement I have is the same requirement that Jesus has is that you deliberately deny yourself. Jesus wasn't about experience. He wasn't about education. Your past did not matter. He didn't care if you were a sinner, but if you deliberately denied yourself, you prayed that prayer, whether today or have previously prayed, and you want to participate in this vision, well, shoot me a text message. 210-920-0405. I'll connect with you. We'll talk a little bit more about how you can help attain this vision be a part of this team that deliberately denies his self, herself together to advance the kingdom movement. Now with that, brothers and sisters, I love you guys. I want you to know that you are not of this world. May God bless you and wash your feet with his joy and his peace. In Jesus's name, y'all have a great rest of your week. We're glad you're a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.